0: it's on. It's
1: a podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fighting in the War Room. This is episode 31, the review for, uh, what month is it? July 18th, 2014. <laughs> oh, uh, it is summer. It's, We're zonked. It's gotten
0: that bad.
1: It really has. It's so dizzying. Uh, and the and the weekend of movies is, like, horrific, actually. I, I was tweeting about the Rotten Tomatoes scores, which are totally invalid. I mean, who 50% should be teetering on the edge of, of good and bad, right? But that's still rotten. But it's just a whole mess of rotten movies. And that's why weekend. on the show
0: this week we're going to be arguing Israel versus... Israel. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, I finally can use my uh, geopolitical study major to uh, bring... Now, what am I talking about? Let's talk about a movie, David. Let's talk so. about Boyhood, a great movie. Well, in my estimation, perhaps not yours. Um, which is Which is... I guess it's a holdover from last week, but more and more people are going to see it. It's opening in more theaters. I think it's opening in – it's 33 theaters this weekend, so it's climbing a Uh, slow build. And um, for people who don't know about Boyhood, who haven't heard about this film somehow, I feel like it's – do you feel like Boyhood is pervading pop culture, the mainstream? It's getting
0: out there. I do. It was on the cover of Little White Lies magazine. Of course, every man, (laughs) woman, and child knows about In the UK. (laughs) Yeah. I do feel like it's getting out there. I do feel like um, even people who may not ever find three hours or, the, or just about to go to the theater and see it have heard about it, have – the concept is simple enough um, that I think it, it, it has become pervasive and it's it's – Left some sort of impression. We've already
1: had a Dawn of the Planet of the Apes mashup,
0: which is really a shame. I mean, I'll I'll <laughs> gripe about that. I mean, I, you know what? I'm, we won't remember to do it later, so I'll just do it now. Uh, <laughs> they, they, you know, it, it's cute by Nelson Carvajal Car- I apologize to Nelson, who is someone that I like in like Facebook friends with. Whatever, I don't know how to pronounce the last wow,
1: name. Wow, I did. I didn't uh, know you were
0: so close to the creator of this this mashup. Uh, I have never spoken to him, but I know who he is. Um, he, I, I do. Re- wish that he had not chosen something that was that topical because I think that it would have been so much stronger uh, to have the same mashup for the entire Harry Potter franchise. It There's still makes, time. It, there is still time, but it feels a little been there, done that, I'm afraid. I mean, I would do it. It would probably take no more than a day. You could take randomly chosen clips from the eight Harry Potter films in sequence <laughs> and you get there. Um But... Unfortunately, I don't think it's really worth the effort anymore. But anyway, but, uh, if you would you like to set this up?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, this boyhood is from Richard Linklater, who wowed us last year with uh, Before Midnight and has, uh, for me at least, a kind of spotty track record, even though I kind of admire everything he attempts to do. Uh, I might be one of the only people who gave uh, me and Orson Welles a good review back in the day. I, I kind of enjoy even the schmaltziest Richard Linklater movie, or or most Hollywood, most conventional. Um, but Boyhood is something he's been working on for 12 years, when he's been going back and forth between things like the before movies, or uh, Bad News Bears, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and keeping him occupied. And what I don't know, and David, maybe you know something about, I mean, the the focus of conversation surrounding this movie has been very much about form and how he has reapproached the movie each year. He's he shot it in pieces, one, uh, like a week of shooting each year for twelve years. I don't know if he wrote the script all at once and filmed it in increments, or if he was reapproaching and writing it. I, uh, I wouldn't
0: each quote me year. on this, but my belief is that they had a loose guideline, but that the bits and pieces were written and often you know in collaboration as he did in the before films with the actors uh in between so he may have an idea as to where he would like to take things but i think he responded to uh eller coltrane who is the boy of the hood in question his contributions and and sort of the person that he was becoming um and there are also you know some of the most interesting things of the movie are the things that they can't anticipate i mean there are uh, there's one scene where they go out canvassing for Obama and of course when they filmed it, uh, they had no idea if he was going to win the election. Uh, and so you know, would that actually have had any impact on the scenes that followed? Probably not. But it's still indicative of how it would have been impossible to simply write everything out the same way that you couldn't write your own life for the next 12 years. Right. I, I
1: keep wondering throughout this kind of press tour that they've been doing for Boyhood. I'm like, I wonder what would happen if Eller Coltrane became a total jock douchebag. And like, the well, movie I mean, would that's, be so different.
0: These are that's a perfect example of how I think the questions the movie answers and the conversations it invites. And, and again, these meditations on form are so much in, more interesting than the movie itself, uh, because I think it's neat to consider how the process of being in this movie shaped him as a person. And, you know, Richard Linklater, uh, while well, I'm sure he interviewed six-year-old Eller extensively, had no way of knowing what kind of person this kid was would become. But I think even if it's only for a few days a year, being wrapped into this universe and having your ordinary life, having this annual event where it suddenly transformed and you, you become the star of a movie featuring famous people and a famous director. And it may be a shot in the moon that you're not going to see for more than a decade, but I think it, it does – you do – It would be impossible not to conform a little bit to that vision and be shaped as any young kid Although he was an
1: actor when he was a kid. This wasn't a a random non-actor, just find a kid who I can shape like Truman Show style with this movie. This guy approached it as an actor. Um, So maybe that's how you end up with slightly artsier type in the end. Uh, But I think it's also
0: like, you know, I think um, it's great that they were able to finish the project and that. Everybody's leap of faith paid off in these actors that he didn't have under contract and he just had a their word return every year. But I think had, you know, God forbid, this young kid died when he was 10 or something, um, you know, Richard Linklater could have scuttled the movie and no one really would have been any the wiser and cinema would have moved on. Um, you know, it's, it's just I think there's that gravitas of it actually of them actually pulling it off that is interesting a, a lot of people have been blown away by this movie and i think
1: i'm one of them i've only seen it once i saw it back at sundance which i'm sure helped to get to see it before hearing a lot about it um but i was just kind of transfixed on this work uh because it's like nothing i i had seen before uh it for me watching it with a giant theater full of people um, who were equally mesmerized by what we were watching? Someone growing up on screen. I just felt like I was watching home movies with everyone. Somehow, um, not not that I was like watching something that felt identifiable in my own life, perhaps, but that um, I. I, I now, I couldn't relate to this experience because it's very much of the time period. Uh, and, uh, you know, he fills it with, like, uh, Mason's playing with the Wii or Mason's growing up and um, riding bikes in a certain part of town. Or he, I mean, he has a very uh, specific experience, you may argue this point, um, that his parents are divorced and he's learning how to deal with that and uh, stepdads float in and out of his life and he has this kind of thin relationship with his father that ends up strengthening over time. Um, But for some reason, the way that this movie is filmed, the way it's orchestrated, the way it's plotted, which I think is very specific, it could be a little more willy-nilly, it could be a little more poetic, quote-unquote, but this is a a written-through film, and somehow I lost myself inside this, as if I was watching home movies because of its simplicity, because it kind of stands away from the drama Uh, in a really enjoyable way, in a relaxed fashion. Uh, It's three hours long, and it kind of flew by for me. And I know that you've had a slightly different experience with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to oversell my reservations. I mean, I think that it's a... Exceptional movie in the dictionary definition of the form. I mean, there's, there's, um, there are a lot of things. I hear what people say. There's nothing like it because there are many movies like this. There are many, especially uh, series of movies. I think that the main achievement of Boyhood is that it compacts an experience. Well, that's why what, it, there's nothing like it. It's not right. a series of movies. Uh, yeah, that's but, completely I mean, it, different. It boils down to the effect. I mean, of course, you could an IFC Center, which had this um, series, you know, built around their their launch for Boyhood, which is an uh, enormous, unprecedented hit for them already. Um, they had, they showed they hate Harry Potter films. They showed uh, Michael Apted's Up series. They showed uh, whatever else they showed. But, uh, you know, it was like High Noon and uh, things like that. But that that are devoted to time. And, uh, you know, they're like watching a TV show. I've been speeding through Mad Men over the past month or so. And seeing Kieran Shipko who plays Sally Draper, grow up. Um, over the course of you know what was originally I guess seven years on TV and for me it was just the course of the past month the cumulative effect is similar I think it there are moments in boyhood where it's really condensed and I think you're overwhelmed not by this particular kid's transformation but simply what it uh, what it represents, just the speed at which like the, the years can sort of slip away and and time elapses and you can you have because the traces of his younger years are still so fresh in your mind you have uh you feel their effects much more as patch said it was like watching home videos if if they were edited together um which again you know it could be in a way that And that's the thing. I mean, like, okay, so let's take you have all of the Patches family home videos and you We do. You lay them out, right? (laughs) And you edit them together. Your like Rod Patches edits them all together and you have three hours of Matt Patches growing up because the films, the home videos were not created for this explicit purpose. They would probably not be engaging to a general public, although they I'm sure they would be devastating for, you know, in a nice way, hopefully for the Patches family uh but this movie it would be devastating, was, trust me. sure this this movie is a similar thing, but it 's designed to appeal to everybody um it, it, This is not a real family that they're portraying, and they want it to appeal to just about every family and I think where the movie suffers for me is because it's so generic in 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 how it really uh you know there are details unique to the as – his mom has a, some trouble with men. He has two stepdads, which I think is an unfortunate reality. Two, you know, abusive stepdads, which I think is an unfortunate reality for a lot of American kids. But in this particular instance, doesn't necessarily translate all that dramatically satisfyingly to uh, to the screen, especially the second time I saw the film. But the um, it's it just it's so general that I'm I'm overwhelmed by the ideas behind it. I'm I'm so glad that Richard Linklater and his collaborators. Undertook this project and finished it. Um, I think that the cinema is better for it. I just think personally for me, I found it difficult to engage on an emotional level in a way that was particular to the movie and that I, you know, you relate it to your own life, you transpose your own experiences over. Uh, uh, over Masons, the name of the kid in the movie. Um, I think the last scene of the film, which some people have accused of being cheesy, I think is is really well done and speaks to the general effect of the film very on the nose in a, in a way. But for me, the Before trilogy, which has very defined characters and has a very real soul to them and you're you, it taps into your own experiences in a real way, but at the same time uh, does so by cultivating unique ones with its characters um you know even if the, the it has the similar gaps they're a lot more abrupt and there's a lot more time that passes between them um but i think if you watched all three of those films in the course of one afternoon the effect would, would be very similar it's similar means and similar ends to boyhood and i just find it so much more interesting and so much more engaging and so while i understand all the praise for boyhood and you know i I think on my letterbox, which is the best I can quantify this, gave it like a four and a half out of five, which is probably a, a, a score that I would still t- stick to, maybe four out of five. But still, that's not so bad. Um, um, I, I just I just can't really think that it's a masterwork or, or something that is going to stay with me for very long.
1: Well, I will agree with you. I mean, I kind of alluded to this that I think the um, ephemera from year to year is very universal. Like we can all – transpose our lives to whatever video game he's playing or whatever childhood, you know, even drinking your first beer in, in an abandoned building. Like maybe there's something like that from all of our lives where we can, we can yeah. put ourselves there. But I do think, and, and this is something that you just honed in on, which is why is this not just watching home movies? This is not a bunch of moments strung together. It feels like I've known these people. I know the, the moments I don't get to see, because of how well characterized they seem to be in the moments I'm given. So whereas my home videos would just be random moments strung together, I I bring to the table the relationships that I have and I can contextualize them. Link later through action, through dialogue, through these specific moments that are underplayed dramatically is still somehow contextualizing these people. I think I do think it's a step beyond just like generic Stock characters who can so who can you can fill with your own soul or something. This is very much. I, I think it's more specific than you're giving it credit for. And part of that is the performances. I mean, I do think that uh, this main quartet: Eller Coltrane as Mason, Patricia Arquette as the mom, Ethan Hawke as the dad, and uh, Richard Linklater's daughter Lorelai Linklater are they are very specific, even if the moments in their lives aren't. And that's kind of how. We start to reform ideas over time and we feel that evolution more than just physically seeing it. I don't think that's all he's doing here. This isn't just documenting people growing up.
0: Yeah, and I liked, I, you know, I, I'm not going to pat him on the back for not overplaying things dramatically, which I think a lot of people have done, because I, maybe just because I've seen them before. Films, as I think so many of us have, like I expect that much of Richard later. I expect him when he is bringing his A game and, and delivering these passion projects that are not bound by st- you know the same commercial restraints that a uh a school of rock or a not to put that movie down but you know might be um that he isn't going to overplay his hand And i actually think a few times he does there are a few really galling moments in this movie uh even the abusive dad like throwing glasses around the house starts bordering on on and uh, there's a a worker at at arquette's house that plays a part that I, i guess i don't want to spoil but um you know, I, I I enjoy how I enjoy the fact that it trusts us to internalize these moments that are not depicted on screen. I mean, we we do see his graduation, but we don't see a lot of other major formative events. Um, it's not quite like one. Year, one day where you know you see it just whatever happens to be on that day and the movie contrives to make sure that whatever happens on that day is dramatically interesting um, but I think it it does a very good job of towing the line between showing the uh like the the, the major informative you know, moments of somebody's life but also giving you the impression that you're just looking in and, and sort of uh, you know you picked a a calendar and just closed your eyes and point to a random day and found something there i think that's all well and good. Um, I don't know if if Mason is particularly – like he's a very wide-eyed, like, sieve for the experiences of the world. He's going to see this and, and react to everything and learn along the way. Like, he, there are never really any strong moments for him where he's doing more than just going along with the current. Um, you know, I, I think he's, he's not a particularly interesting kid. <laughs> Who is? <laughs> yeah, but I mean it's – it's um, oh, you're man, you're it's, waiting for
1: this movie to depart from reality in some ways. Like Linklater is so driven to capture truth and honesty and the and the the mundane it's, lifestyle. It's not of a documentary.
0: I mean, it's not. I mean, I'm not waiting for it because I expect these things out of any movie. I the movie is never you know it never cleaves close enough to a sort of verite reality. The impression thereof. You know where where um, I don't expect it to be violated in some way. I mean, I think this is, this movie is very uh, transparently constructed um, and I think it needs to be in order to work even as well as it does. I just, I don't, it just didn't like, I don't know if this brilliant idea allows for an execution that can satisfy uh, in all fronts. And I really, for me, this was, Um, It was strange because I think it's an intellectual exercise. It's something we can talk about in the same breath as like the clock, a Christian Mark Clay installation or something. It's fascinating and I'm so glad that it's there to reference and discuss and think about. Um, The ideas, I mean the emotions of it, I I have felt – You know, they echo and and I can understand them but I don't – connect the idea or the emotions that the movie is obviously trying to provoke <laughs> with the content of the actual movie, if I, that makes sense.
1: When, when I saw this movie, when I knew we were going to talk about it, I like psychoanalyzed you silently um, in, in my own time. I actually thought about you while we were not podcasting because oh, wow. of our... Um, because of our, our our quarter quells, and uh, several of our quarter quells have had to do with our past or or important milestone moments in our movie watching histories and I know that you 've often uh, struggled to come up with something that seems like that important that it 's all kind of like. Either in the now, or or you're glossing over those movies. Like you don't cherish the past that much, and I wonder if that plays into why you might favor the the before trilogy more than Boyhood. I don't think Boyhood's a nostalgic movie, uh, which I think I feared going into it. Um, but it's certainly about The before
0: before movies are nostalgic. I mean, they they before movies, I think. You know, I don't... I, there don't you think
1: before sunset is, is, is the danger of nostalgia or something?
0: Yeah, but I but I, it also, you know, it, it plays both sides because it, it's very much about that. But at the same time, completely levels me every time I see it with the feelings that it evokes. You know, with that, like all, all the conversations they have in that movie about him seeing her walking to the church when he was driving through New York. I mean, like all that is my bread and butter. I mean, it just melts me. And, um, you know, that... I do think that's that's nostalgic and in, in a way of sort of uh, uh, looking back at the past and, and romanticizing it very strongly and I think um, the way those those emotions resurfaced before midnight moved me enormously and that was my favorite film of of last year and uh, I, I do think it is connected to the past I don't I, I don't know. You know, I do feel like I also have a similar relationship to movies uh, that I've seen in the past as a lot of people do, but I just think they're often very different movies. <laughs> but and I like I, I don't know. But uh, I yeah I, I I yeah I guess maybe it's just a childhood thing. Like I, the before movies all target uh, a romantic time. I mean, there is a certain romance of childhood, but it's a, it's not a. Romantic romance. It's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's tree and tree of life, you know, which covers similar territory is much more effective for me as well. I think I I would
1: tend to agree with that. I mean, I also adore tree of life. I love tree of life. I think it's probably a more successful film tackling similar ideas than boyhood. Um, Yeah,
0: I guess I'm just much more in touch with the ideas that are expressed and explored in when, you know, looking through the lens of the past, and the nostalgia of it, I think the ages and the choices and where you are in your maturation that are touched upon in the Before movies are just a lot more present for me. And my childhood was was pretty uneventful, and I don't remember much of it. So maybe maybe that's why.
1: <laughs> maybe someone's making a Boyhood movie about you, and you'll get to relive that
0: eventually. Maybe your I mean, parents maybe. have been filming you. I mean, I think about that all the time. About you know, I obsessively catalog stuff and and. Uh, I totally understand the impulse behind making this movie and I think, you know, Lorelei Linklater has gotten the record of saying that she was really upset the first time she saw the film. But uh, <laughs> She
1: wanted I, to stop making the movie because she's like, I'm, right. I'm, I'm she growing up and I'm <laughs> getting into that awkward teen stage. Stop filming me.
0: Yeah, but I think that the uh, – she'll be happy that she has – I mean I don't know her. I, I can't – I can only presume so much. But if I were – if she's anything like me, she will be happy that this exists down the line, the only difference is that in my version of boyhood, if it were about me, I would never be in it. I would be. I would be happy to be behind the camera.
1: How uh, long, how how much of the film would you just be asleep or like <laughs> on Ambien
0: <laughs>
1: on a couch? Uh,
0: I, I would hope that the maybe not your t- youthful the you're Richard, youthful. Richard Linklater of me would edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> These are essential moments in your life. If you see, like you, you know, can't deny them. Appa chat pong. We the Thackles boyhood uh (laughs) that is attuned a little bit more to the slower moments maybe maybe they would leave that stuff in um
1: Um, i i I wanted to ramp up this conversation i I wanted to talk about richard linklater as a director in this film as a visualist or or i feel like a lot of again the, the talking points of this movie are about how he accomplished it and what he's kind of put on screen and over the amount of time he's had to like log footage. I feel like people are approaching the conversation that way, but um, his visual style did a lot for me in this movie. Um, And I guess, I think they shot it on 35 millimeter because he felt like he had to, it's the only thing that would look the same over the years. If they did digital, it would all look funky because things would come and go so quickly. Um, But for me, this has a very distinct style it's 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 not flat um, but it's photographic it's it's like the pictures you took growing up uh, because it's 35 millimeter
0: yeah I mean I think it's uh, it's interesting especially to see how that style evolves over the course of the 12 years they were filming it it's tempting maybe too tempting to read into it and see like a long tracking shot of of Mason and a girl walking down the alley and say okay, this was around the time that they were gearing up for or just shot before sunset. And so it reflects what he was interested in then and how he wanted to express time and et cetera. Um, you know, long shots and, and uh, long takes rather. And you know how those have sort of always had their origins in their expression of time. Um, I, you know, the time image, the Delusian concept of it. And I think like you, you can see him tap into these things. Only he, I think would really be able to tell you, uh, if, there was any rhyme or reason behind why you know it happened that that shot of them in the alley that is almost identical formally to so many of the shots before Sunset was filmed around the same time. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I think he also gets out of his way a lot. There's a very unhurried style to his compositions and to the editing rhythms of the movie um, where he needs everything to remain somewhat flat. It is interesting to me that the first years, the first few years that we see are not given nearly as much screen time as the later years. And I think there's a few reasons for that. One is simply because when you're six, the content isn't quite as interesting. There's not really as much room to play around. But also, you know, I think this movie really is rooted around memory. And the memories you have of your most immediately recent years are simply so much clearer than the ones from 12 years ago. And so I think it really orients the movie in the present looking back. Um, And also, I think we should talk about the music. I, I was about to bring
1: that point. up. I didn't. Yeah. Well, first, I wanted to say to your point about the the younger material. Uh, I mean, it makes sense for me that a lot of that's kind of uh, drama-less, lush outside shots, biking around or just exploring town and, and overhearing mm-hmm. mother's conversations and then... I mean, that's what I, I, I found really involving about this film. As Mason grew up, Mason becomes part of the drama where he was just observing. And you're right, uh, he's not an active character per se. But the way that Linklater is um, orchestrating scenes and, and choreographing and blocking things and or plotting in the script, um, he, he forces Mason to become more active in his own life. He has to be. I mean, we all... Come to that point, and I think that's where the direction really succeeds. Um, yes, talk about the music because well, yeah. Some- so
0: the they make a choice. One of the things they do, you know, it's a, a brilliant, but there's a choice. Uh, I, I would, I would not ever think Linklater would not make this choice, which is that they don't put the years of the movie on the screen. There's no title card that says you're in 2003 or 2004. I would never think Linklater would make that mistake. And he doesn't. So there's a very fluid sense and you'll go from one cut to another and suddenly, you know, Mason will be going through puberty and he'll have longer hair and shorter hair and you hear gasps from the audience. It's the equivalent of a plot twist. But one of the ways he does sort of anchor you into particular points of time is using songs that were iconic from very particular points in our recent history. So, you know, they'll play, uh, the movie opens with Yellow by Coldplay um and then you know they go through bold uh, bold choice there yeah I, I
1: mean it's a very that's uh, actually somewhat. when when that song kicked in first scene at suddance i'm like holy shit no what's going on i uh, my my heart sank a little bit
0: when coldplay yeah i mean came on. someone tweeted afterwards that it was like uh the movie is like a challenge to open with coldplay and then it takes three hours to get you not to resent it anymore but there's, there's Arcade Fire and and the, it, when we saw it, there was Daft Punk in there with Get Lucky. that will let you know that you're pretty much nearing up on the present. But they ended up not securing the rights for that. So now there's something else. Um, but you, you always know exactly what year you are. And there's one point where they listen to Band on the Run by Wings. And uh, you know judging by the movie's logic to that point, I'm like, wait, are we in like 19 – whenever the fuck that song was recorded? I don't know. When did Wings record Band on the Run? Um but, you know, it's, it's so uh, it's so 1973, uh, but it's so instructive as to when and where you are. And I wrestle a little bit with how necessary that was. And, and you know, why is he only listening to the most important, you know, recognizable music of his day? Because <laughs> people do that.
1: People do that. That is that is universal in a way that's not stuffing it down your throat universality. I mean, if you're driving in a car, you're hearing popular music.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess. I was just wondering why, you know, And at, at one point there's like a bright eyes reference at the end, and, and it's a good thing, but it's like, eh, yeah, Mason me as the kind of kid who would have more particular music taste. Um, He's fine. I, so. I was joking that there's never, you know, it felt unrealistic that there was never an emo phase in the movie. Uh, or maybe if there was, we simply... Glide over it because he kind it's, of it's had really an emo phase.
1: Maybe not music. He wasn't listening to dashboard or no globes also, maps or whatever you know, nonsense.
0: He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't sixteen when I was sixteen, so um, you know maybe maybe it just wasn't. Yeah, really you don't know how the kids do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's it's definitely a choice that, in a way, it, it makes it less. Uh, you know, I, I think watching the movie fifty years from now and the music doesn't have quite the same meaning for people it will make it feel less general. And I think for current audiences, it, it I don't know. It just sort of took me out of the, the moment in a little way. Cause it's like by telling you when the moment is sort of pushes you to its boundary. And and not, and I often love movies that throw you out of the moment, uh, you know, Brechtian as we like to say, but um, in this movie, I'm not sure how appreciated it was uh, anyway.
1: Oh, that's really funny you kind of introduced this idea now, now I'm in this like thought experiment where I'm watching boyhood 50 years from now
0: Uh
1: or like a young person 50 years from now watching this is what does this have any relevance to anybody? Is it timeless even Mm. though it's using of the moment music cues
0: and of, you know, again with the ephemera Um, certain elements are definitely, I think the ephemera is Not going to age well or meaningfully, I think, is the problem. I think that, like you know, you'll hear, "Do you realize?" In fifty years, the lyrics speaks to the plot, but you know, the meaning of this song coming out in two thousand four, it's just going to be irrelevant. But I think you know, the the movie's themes, especially as they build towards the end, and you reflect on how time has sort of slipped through, and and to live in the moment because that's always where you are, regardless of what year it is and what song is popular. That stuff is, by definition, um, timeless. Uh, and I, you know, just to wrap up, I mean, I think it's a, it's a great movie. It just doesn't really, uh, as anything more than a, a thought exercise, doesn't really stick to me. And uh, you know, I, I guess if this had been The Hobbit, to his. To the before movies, Lord <laughs> of the Rings, maybe it would be very different. But I feel like the the real masterwork has already been completed for me, <laughs> and this is uh, a step a step less interesting and, and a lot less engaging for me. But it's still something that I think literally everyone listening to the show should probably see.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm shocked that I like am anxious to see it again. I really thought. I, after seeing it at Sundance, I'm like, I've seen it once. That, that's great.
0: I don't well, know if I need to keep months. going back to <laughs> it. It's been months. it saw, I saw it twice after like a three-month gap. And the third hour was rough. Like I was ready to leave with a good 40 minutes left to go.
1: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see it again. Uh, I, I could live in this movie probably. I probably do live in this movie. I'm, I'm laying on the grass right now. I'm just looking at the clouds and thinking about my life. And maybe I'll go hiking with my <laughs> college friends and oh God. have a ma- gay time.
0: A- Date a girl whose favorite movies of the summer are Pineapple Express, The Dark Knight, and uh, Tropic Thunder. That wouldn't be the worst girl to date
1: for you. It wouldn't work, but uh, maybe not. I like The Dark Knight, uh, Boyhood. It's it's expanding quickly. I don't think this one's going to hit VOD. I think IFC is being very protective of this and making sure you go to the theaters to see it. Hopefully, it's
0: expanding quickly because the IFC Center is literally fund using ticket sales to fund. New auditoriums in the IFC Center, where they can pack people into the movie,
1: and yes. hopefully, hopefully, your uh, R, your theater will allow younger people into its R-rated screenings, as our New York City IFC Center seems to be doing, which is awesome.
0: Um, so, but, uh, would you recommend this film to to younger people? Yeah, I'm, absolutely. I think uh, I think it's a great thing for people to see, especially when they're young enough to apply the lessons from it to the present moment as, as almost impossible as that actually is because I think you do need that distance to understand how important it is to to linger in the moment the thing about the moment is that you know no matter how old you are it's uh it's it's difficult cool. to live in but I do think it's something it'd be good for younger people to see and hopefully to normalize their experience and realize that they're they all have a lot more in common than they might think yeah, um, I, I think I'm just anxious to talk about boyhood with everyone. You know, if you're a parent,
1: I want to hear what you have to say. I wish Katie was here. We'll have to pick her brain uh, on next week's episode because I'm curious about, like, what's that female perspective on boyhood and if it's as relatable or as, as compelling to them. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily male-driven, um, especially because of the presence of Lorelei Linklater. many but yeah, there's just it goes so back to the, to the conversation
0: movie. about how relatable it is. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about... He, he, he's uh, what is it his dad's uh, some character in the movie is like comes from a religious background and are like these church scenes and they go shooting and I'm thinking about my Jewish upbringing in New York and Connecticut and, and how you know I may be male but I'm this is still a lot of the movie is not a life that right. I've lived well um, you should have moved to Texas I guess so hey now
1: you're an all star get your game on go play
0: hey now a star. get the show on, get paid.
1: All that is gold. Only shooting stars break the mold. It's a cool place. Did you want to, to briefly mention up anything up about planes or? No. Media <laughs> media. <laughs> Come on, M- mention something about planes. Tell me one thing. Give me one opinion about planes, fire and rescue. The inappropriate release uh, this week.
0: Uh, yeah, so we are recording this on, on a very dark day for planet Earth. This is uh, July 17th, and a lot of horrible, horrible things happened in the world today. Uh, and as re- in, in light of one of them, the release of planes, fire, and rescue seems particularly ill-timed, which is not funny necessarily. But it is interesting, given how so much was made about the release date in advance of the air disaster today, because it comes only one year really 11 months after the release of Disney Toon's first Cars spinoff, Planes, last year. Um, and I'm sure they wish that they had waited a little bit longer now.
1: Yeah, I just hope this doesn't truncate the series. You know, <laughs> a lot more mythology uh, that we want to get out there.
0: If I did, it, it was my my job to go and see this film. And I wrote about it for The Dissolve, if you care. Uh, it's not particularly good, but it is, uh, you know, if you – if you do happen to see it, uh, we can talk some time about the, the complex logistics and sexual dynamics of the plane world <laughs> and how I literally – just looking at a snapshot of the Wikipedia page where it lists the cast and it's like Terry Hatcher as a forklift. <laughs> like, there are a lot so, of forklifts like, in the movie. I was like crying, weeping, laughing so hard. Like, there are a I number of forklift characters. And Dane Cook voices. I mean, it's awful. I didn't see that. He the is Pur- the plane, right? He is. He oh, is he's the, the plane. plane. Ed Harris as a rescue helicopter with a dark past. Did you
1: enjoy it more than The Purge Anarchy, the other movie that you and I saw?
0: I enjoyed them both about equally. The Purge Anarchy is much too long. Uh, I mean, the plane's, you know, there does, with, uh, for all of its lack of merit, it's like 80 minutes with credits. Uh, and it, it just goes. And The Purge, too, is, doesn't have the budget to expand on the... Concey to the original, which people were upset about because it, it promised this whole look at a society that has the purge. I
1: think it successfully did that. It opened the world. People are roaming it really the streets. To,
0: and it, it does it by, I mean, it, like, literally, that's what it does. I just don't know if they actually have the means to do it effectively or the vision for it. But I think really the way they make it feel that way is by padding out the running time. It's <laughs> uh, it's like 110 minutes or whatever. And it was just like, there's a, there's nothing really going on. it it's feels not that entertaining that, to me. You know, I,
1: like, I, I have a problem like watching people speak about privilege and stick guns in each other's faces and I'm just like, I don't live in a society where I, this can be entertaining at the moment. I don't yeah, know who does.
0: The line between, I mean, I think the movie, it's interesting because they sell it as a horror movie. But, it is. I mean, they sell it as a horror movie but I think it's A, obviously a satire and B, it's a it ends up becoming a fantasy for the working class the 99% of the, the people that you know, are hunted in the premise but end up sort of getting the upper hand as it develops and I think if you're if you're a rich fat cat banker watching this movie it begins as a fantasy and eventually reveals itself to be I think I said this almost verbatim on our episode earlier this week but the uh, um, uh yeah it's it the it you know we live in a world right now we live in America where 1% of the population has control of 20% of the wealth and so the line between Satire and reality is so thin in this movie. The only the, the only difference is a construct, the, the purge itself, which makes absolutely no sense. It's so transparent, you know, because it's not about catharsis. Of course, it's really about weeding out the poor, making money, becoming a business, making the rich richer and the poor dead. And there's it's so transparent to anyone watching the movie that it's hard to believe that anybody in the world of the purge wouldn't be able to see through this, um, and that you know. Even if the, the rich were able to sort of bully their way to make it happen anyway, even though their policies were flawed, uh, it's a society that's predicated on having like a new government, new founding fathers, <laughs> government-sponsored rat- rhetoric that's like release the beast and all this stuff that just doesn't really add up. And then
1: there's Michael uh, K. Williams in this movie yeah. who – I, is he playing Malcolm X or who,
0: who? Who do we think he's trying to? They, they I, want him to be. I agree with patches. The problem is that it's just not that entertaining. Like you think, <laughs> if if a good filmmaker got his hands on this material, even with the dumb premise, they could have made the action scenes thrilling. They could have made you feel like you're, you know, with these right. characters being hunted, they were in danger. But it's so. It Rod like Serling is sequel.
1: looking down upon us at this movie, and going, ah, "I could have done. I could have done the Purge."
0: It feels like a Saw sequel. It's grungy. It's weak. It's just very tepid. It's no eye origins.
1: <laughs> not to keep this conversation going too much longer, but
0: oi, that movie. Uh, that, that you know, that's, that's, uh, there's some interesting emotional beats in that movie that, that stuck with me. Interesting, <laughs> uh, some nice original music and uh The music is great. Interesting use of radiohead music, which I am in the process of. Fixing an article about for the dissolve about the use of radio and music that hopefully I'll be able to save and publish at some point. But um, yeah, the pseudoscience of this movie and the stories it goes, I, it had me in the first half. It, Michael it, Pitt, I totally
1: agree. The like yeah. pseudoscience, the commitment of Michael Pitt to making this movie work. Is is quite astounding, like, and then it the totally time, flounders like, it fight. once he goes on and his I, Paul Haggis <laughs> journey.
0: Paul Haggis journey is a good way to put it. I won't connect the dots for you out there, but uh, this movie goes from from the first half. He's working in a science lab with Britt Marling, and he falls in love with this model who he meets and uh, great in eyes, ridiculous, right? <laughs> yeah, and a ridiculous me cute. Cut to him. Buying billboard space in India and like abducting essentially a small girl. <laughs> like, I don't even. know. How do they do it? Uh, but if you wanna, if you wanna put those two things together, either read the Wikipedia page or go see iOrigin. Uh
1: Well, I think that almost wraps up everything we, we're, we're talking about. There's Very so so many movies this weekend. We didn't even get to the Zach Brath, the Braf. I
0: haven't seen the. Braff. I
1: have not seen the Braff. Well Maybe we'll have to resurface that when. Zach Braff isn't searching Twitter for mentions of the film and attacking people about it. Um, sorry, Zach. Harold uh, person. We're giving. We'll give it a fair shot down the road. Uh, so why don't we tell people where they can find us and we'll wrap this thing up.
0: Uh, I'm David Rulick. I'm the editor at Large of Little White Lies Magazine. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at David Rulick Criterion Corner. Uh, and yeah, that's it and i am matt
1: patches i write all over the internet and i put my work at MattPatches.com and i'm on twitter at mr patches uh and we'll be back next week with a brand new episode with hopefully everybody maybe not david david's running away i think but i hope being
0: abducted for a week
1: (laughs) maybe not david but uh we'll be back with something so until then farewell